welcome to the CEO.Digital Show. My name is Craig McCartney. And I'm Darcy Thompson-Fields. And this is an exploration of technologies, trends, and strategies straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights that will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders now and in the future. You can learn more and stay up to date at CEO.Digital. Craig, welcome to your first ever episode of the CEO.Digital show. Thank you so much for joining us as co-host. How was the first interview with Lisa? Thanks very much, Darcy. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited about what the future holds for the show. Talking about Lisa, I thought she was a great guest. Just listening to her career and the development of that from fighting pirates to working with the police to now running wargaming scenarios for large enterprises. Really interesting. What was yours? I think all of those cybersecurity insights were incredible, but one particular thing that stood out for me was her approach to leadership and the fact that a lot of the qualities that you need as a good leader are actually the qualities you have to have as an astronaut. So true. I'm really looking forward to the episode. Shall we get into it? Let's do it. Our guest this week is Lisa Forte, co-founder and partner of Red Goat Security. She's a professional speaker, trainer, entrepreneur, documentary personality, and vlogger. Lisa was also named one of the top 100 women in tech. She's an expert in social engineering, insider threats, and helping large companies rehearse for a cyber attack. Lisa Forte, welcome to the CEO.Digital show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to this uh, interview and very, very happy that we can finally do it. Definitely. Well, from fighting pirates to assisting the police, you've had an unusual career trajectory. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, so um, I didn't have the sort of traditional expected route into cybersecurity. Um, I actually studied law at university um, and I did a master's in law, um, international law and maritime law. And I ended up accepting a job working for a company that secured ships from pirates and sort of moved around within that company and really ended up hating law and really loving security. Um, So that's how I ended up sort of taking on more and more security work um, and then moved into counterterrorism policing and then into one of the UK police cybercrime units, which I left in 2017 to start Red Goat Cybersecurity. And here I am. (laughs) Incredible. I mean, on top of all that, you've also been named one of the top 100 women in tech, you know, a continually male dominated industry with, I should think, you know, cyber being even more so. What has that experience been like? And have you seen any shift? Do you see any progression? Yeah, to be honest, it's it's actually from the sort of career route that I've come into cyber, it actually doesn't feel that bad from a a women in tech perspective because when I started off in in the piracy industry it was just I was the I was literally the only woman in the entire company and this company had offices all around the world all male ex-royal marines predominantly and then little old me so I sort of launched my career into an industry that basically didn't have any women whatsoever so in comparison to that I it, it doesn't feel too bad however I do think for women generally going into STEM kind of work, into engineering or science and technology, that kind of stuff, I think you do have to be 
a little bit more fiery, a little bit more confident and maybe a bit pushy as well to get your voice heard. Because mm-hmm. I do feel that maybe it's a tendency within women, we do tend to sort of sit back and let everyone voice their opinions. And sometimes that can make it look like we don't have anything to add or anything to contribute. And that in a male dominated world can often be interpreted like that. So I think that's one of the main lessons I've learned, especially working with Royal Marines, ex-Royal Marines, you have to speak up and you have to speak up loud. (laughs) Can only imagine. Talking about Royal Marines, I think that is a lovely segue into some of the work that you do. And I only say that because I'm working at Red Goat Security. I know you run various wargaming scenarios. So could you tell us a little bit about Red Goats and maybe a little bit about some of those wargaming situations? Yeah, sure. So um, we started in 2017 and we specialize in sort of three areas really of security. So we've got the social engineering and the insider threat side of things, which is your sort of human side of security. And then we also uh, help companies rehearse for a cyber attack so in very much the same way that you would run a fire drill to rehearse your evacuation plans we run essentially drills or exercises for the crisis management teams of companies to help them practice what they would do what they would say how they can mitigate damage because often in these crisis situations it's really not the time to kind of come up with things on the fly you're in a panic you're not thinking very clearly a lot is on the line you're not perhaps in your best strategic mindset at that moment in time. So this is why it's really important to have plans and rehearse. And we've often seen with cybercrime that the companies that have the best plans and have practiced those plans come off much, much better. So that's why we sort of do that. And it ends up being amazing fun for me as a professional because it ends up being essentially me being the director of a movie. And obviously, without giving too much of your secret sauce away, because I know that's what you guys specialize in, you know, how do these situations unfold? And, and can you walk us through? I know you just you know gave us some highlights, but are there any particular examples which you think the listeners would appreciate? I've got a couple that are sort of both entertaining and quite informative. So one that happened by kind of accident, really, was we actually ran a crisis exercise for Salisbury Hospital, literally a week before the poisonings happened in Salisbury and Salisbury Hospital was plunged into chaos. And it it looked a little bit suspicious that we ran it. Uh, Obviously, we didn't run that scenario, (laughs) which would have been very odd and probably would have got me arrested. But it was it was a lot of the things that we practice from the cyber perspective, they could put into play again from a comms perspective with you know, with what they were doing with with the poisonings. Um, my favourite one, though, has got to be we, want, we ran one for a port and we actually had the cooperation of the fire, the ambulance service, the police. And we ran an entire thing where we had sort of actors and actresses lying on the ground, sort of with blood all over them. And it was this massive scenario where they'd been attacked and everything had blown up. Um, and I just remember at one point, the CEO of this port company, he just sort of sits there and he just sort of, he sort of just puts his head in his hands as if to be like, it's so real for him at that moment in time that he just is envisaging having to sort of fall on his sword and and hand in his notice. And at that point, I really thought this is what, this is what I love doing for a living, (laughs) creating this drama. (laughs) That sounds so fun, but I imagine there's so much work that goes into it as well. Yeah. In addition to all that great work you're doing at Red Goat, 
last year, you co-founded Cyber Volunteers 19, a group dedicated to helping healthcare providers stay safe from and handle cyber attacks, scam and fraud. Do you think there's been an increase in threats since the start of the pandemic? Yes, definitely. And one of the things I think that I learned from the Cyber Volunteers initiative was very much that there is no sacred ground. Mm. There's no point where attackers won't go after. Um, And it was a kind of sad realization, actually, because I always, I think, obviously naively assumed that hospitals who were saving the lives of innocent people would probably be off limits and people would just think, well, we won't attack them because it's not very humane to do so. Of course. It just made me realise that actually they don't care at all and they're just attacking whoever they uh, have the opportunity to attack. So it was quite it was quite scary. And I think the problem is with cybercrime or, or with any organised crime, really, it thrives off uncertainty. The more uncertain a time is, the better it is for them. The more money they can make, the more lies they can tell, the more scams they can they can initiate. And there hasn't been a time of uncertainty quite like this. So, yeah. It's a good time to be a hacker. And also the having everyone dispersed and not being in the sort of security of your own offices and, and having people that you can sort of bounce, you know, any sort of concerns from, you know, people are, are dealing with these requests from their home. And I'm sure there must be a, a lot more of these attacks happening, obviously, outside of the healthcare system as well. Definitely. And, you know, we've seen romance fraud increase exponentially in the past year. We've seen you know, phishing emails and attacks increase exponentially. We've seen sort of scam companies and cons being sort of done left, right and centre. And I really think that this has really given them opportunity in the way that perhaps we've never seen before in society and hopefully we'll never see again. (laughs) Yeah, there is end in sight uh, as per the latest news updates, which is great news. And then in terms of what, in your opinion, what can cybersecurity and IT leaders working within healthcare do better to protect themselves uh, and their systems from these cyber threats? It's really difficult. So one thing that I realized when we started the cyber volunteers movement was that there are so many hospitals in Europe that have two people who are the IT team and are tech support and are cybersecurity. And in one situation, the hospital one of the IT team went off sick and there's only two people who work at this hospital. And that's 50% of their cybersecurity team who've now got COVID and are off sick during a pandemic. Um, So it's kind of one of those situations that I think in Europe, it's great to have state provided healthcare. It's great to have that free accessible healthcare to everybody. The downside, the drawback to that is that we need more funding going into the healthcare system because without that, they can't afford to do the things that they need to do. And actually, they protect data that's so incredibly sensitive. It's so personal, so sensitive. It's so, you know, of all the industries, you know, they are one of the ones that have perhaps the most critical personal information on all of us. So we should be investing a lot more in that, I think. Absolutely. I mean, you'd think that they would ideally be the industry best and most supported, right? Yeah, and it is really difficult. You mentioned earlier uh, a little bit about romance fraud, you know, which is 
an unusual sort of attack that's not just financially devastating, but can come coupled with an emotional pain and embarrassment too. This is quite a sophisticated attack approach. And at the end of the day, it doesn't fit with the idea that we have of hackers breaking through the mainframe. So why is this type of attack on the rise and what can people do to protect themselves from it? This is a really difficult one. And I think generally in the population, there's this kind of assumption that the people who fall for it are stupid or maybe, you know, really desperate for some attention or or something like that. Um, And that's really not the case. Um, I helped a lady who's a lawyer at at a big law firm in London. And she'd met this gentleman online just before the pandemic had started sort of February time. So almost a year ago. And she'd sort of got chatting with him sort of fallen in love with him I suppose and the relationship had evolved and over time he started asking for a little bit of money and then a little bit more and a little bit more always for things that kind of made sense and fitted in with the narrative of of where he was he was living in Colombia yeah and eventually it culminated in him getting her to remortgage her house and send I think it was like 260,000 pounds to Colombia And then she never heard from him again. And obviously there's a financial impact because she's remortgaged her house as she's paying interest on this this loan. But also she said to me that the thing that got her the most was that she feels so embarrassed because it seems like a stupid thing to have done. Yeah. And we're seeing this a lot more because people who have broken up with their partners during the pandemic, people who are really lonely, meeting people online. That's the only place you can meet people right now. Um, And it's very difficult when you're in these uncertain times to know who's genuine and who's not, because you're not necessarily in that really stable, happy place that you usually are. Um, And you see a lot of this happening and it's been a huge increase. And we usually the main bulk of them are coming from South America. Um, But if you think if you can maintain a relationship with someone for eight months and get 260,000 UK pounds as a Colombian citizen, that's a pretty good return on investment for eight months of messaging, isn't it? Definitely. Are these, do you think, are they organized crime units or are these just individuals acting on their their own accord? Or even would you say that some are um, bots? Um, I think some are bots, but typically it's a group of individuals who have a list of people and it will kind of, the people who run these messaging uh, services like this for romance fraud will typically be like sort of interchangeable. So you may have, for example, the three of us set one up and we take it in turns, depending on whose day it is to send the messages. Um, And the person on the other end doesn't know if they're speaking to me or to Craig or to Darcy. And, you know, uh, that's just how we run it. And then we split the money three ways. We've got a new business idea, guys. (laughs) So it is a full-time job, literally conning people. Yeah. And that's just, like you said, preying on people's vulnerabilities and, and, you know, I mean, it sounds like a hard job to do. I don't think I would (laughs) sign up to that pretty quickly. What can you do as a, a person on the receiving end to stop yourself from being so vulnerable are there checks in place that you would recommend? Are there, you know, is there like a litmus test? What what would you what would you recommend, Lisa? Always be super suspicious of anybody who messages you on social media. Obviously, we meet people online. Obviously, you might, you know, form a friendship or anything like that. Never send any money. Always make sure that you have some sort of video chat with the individual before you send photos or anything else that you might not want being disclosed or used against you because we've seen a lot of times people get photos that are perhaps a little bit 
revealing and then those are used for blackmail so again just be super careful if you're not sure who that person is and nobody can vouch for that person just be very very mindful that this person could be anybody or it could be a series of individuals so it's just mindful just don't transfer money don't send photos unless you're sure who's on the receiving end of that that's great advice it seems inevitable that we are seeing a rise in attacks and uh, we had the pleasure of interviewing you recently for our new co.digital anywhere operations report and in that you said that hackers had never had a better year than 2020 can you expand on why that is and how 2021 is looking for them Yeah, so 2021 is looking pretty good for them as well, I would say. The problem that you have is that we saw, as I said, anytime that there's a large amount of uncertainty, hackers, con artists, scammers thrive. That's perfect environment for them. And we've had probably the biggest upheaval in our lifetimes last year. Everybody, the entire world picked up and worked from home. And instantly you had vulnerabilities everywhere because people who weren't prepared for this did it as quickly as possible. You had staff who were worried and working at home and their kids are running around and they're distracted. So you've got the perfect storm really for people to take advantage of that. And one of the things that I like to highlight, it came out of working for the cyber volunteers And what actually happened was that the hospital in question basically furloughed all their non-essential staff. So, you know, like heart surgeons, knee surgeons, people who weren't emergency people. Hmm. And they wanted to carry on sort of seeing their patients from home, making sure they had that continuity of care. So the doctors took it upon themselves to set up Zoom meetings with their patients. Um, This is when Zoom was still rooted through China. And they uploaded patient records and test results to Google Docs, just their own private Google Docs, to share them with the patients. Because in their mindset, they used Google Docs for their personal lives. So why wouldn't they use this for the patients? Yeah. And in one situation, we had a bit of an, well, A, that's an issue in itself, but a more serious issue that came from that, where it was discovered that one doctor had got six or seven patients. He'd put their results in different folders in this Google Docs folder. And then he'd accidentally shared the link to the big parent file to all those patients instead of each individual folder. So all those patients had access to each other's records, which is obviously quite a serious data protection issue, quite a serious data leak issue. Um, And we very quickly realized that what had happened was essentially this data that had been you know, behind your sort of walls and your moat and your your drawbridge typically was now all over the place. It was in Google Docs. It was on Zoom. It was in emails. It was just suddenly everywhere. And we had no clue where it was. Hmm. And people instantly in the cyber community sort of jumped on and said, oh, you know, this is the doctor's fault. How stupid are they? And I think actually that's completely wrong. The doctors in those situations They just used what they were used to using in their personal lives to share photos or share documents. It's the IT team's fault for not giving them something that they could use that was secure to do that job. And I think that's what it comes back to time and time again. If you don't give your staff the tools they need to do their job, they will use tools they use in their own lives to do that. That's so true. I think, you know, another quite interesting industry disruption that we've seen 
in addition to healthcare, is what's happening with retail at the moment. And, you know, the report I mentioned earlier, when we interviewed you, you touched on, you know, some interesting technologies, uh, including the use of blockchain to monitor supply chains more effectively. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and how it relates to security? Yeah, so I actually did some research, which is written up as an article on my LinkedIn, if you want to go and check it out, on sustainability within the fashion industry, because that's something that is has always been something that quite close to my heart. And I sort of started off researching it in one in one manner, and it sort of took these twists and turns and ended up into a whole other beast. And what was really interesting in that context was there was a company called Retraced who had set up uh, an ability for fashion labels or fashion brands to track every single element of their supply chain, both from a productivity perspective, from a sustainability perspective, and in terms of, you know, whether they were up and operating. And what was really fascinating about that was by using blockchain to being able to allow them to monitor these supply chains so effectively. I wrote this pre-COVID, but what ended up happening was this played perfectly into COVID because all of a sudden these fashion brands who had used blockchain to monitor their supply chains had complete visibility of what was going on, complete visibility of who was operating, who wasn't, were there delays, what were those delays? And the ones that didn't, it all crumbled. So I think we come back to this same point that with with COVID, this has sort of taken a big highlighter pen to this issue, which is if you are not developing and going down that technology journey, something will happen, some disruptive event will happen, and you will be very much caught out and fall behind. And we've seen this, with especially with fashion. Mm. You all will have seen fashion brands who have done really well and have adapted quickly to the pandemic and those that have really struggled to keep going at all and you know some that have actually gone bust this year so it's a really brutal industry that we can learn a lot of lessons from I think. Something we've discussed previously is that the Information Commissioner's Office has hinted that it may be more lenient towards companies on a privacy and data front following the pandemic What do you think will be the fallout of that? Do you think we'll start to see issues arising and see those be exploited? It's a really difficult one, isn't it? Mm. I see why the ICO has said that they will be more lenient during this time, because it's also not really in the economy's interest to slap people with huge fines in a really disruptive, confusing time. Maybe they, you know, they're going to struggle financially anyway. Most industries are, you know, you might increase the number of companies that go under. It's not necessarily in the public interest to do so. Conversely, though, the issue that we have is we're in a time where there has been a mass migration to the cloud. Some people have started that journey and already before the pandemic and have done it really well. Other people have just panicked and gone, ah, quickly throw everything in the cloud. <laughs> and there is a very high chance that there are a lot of security gaps out there because people were thinking more about moving to the cloud really quickly to keep that business continuity going and keep the operations going and they weren't probably thinking about the security in the same way that they ought to or if they had done if they'd had more time so it's a really difficult one and I personally don't know which side I fall fall on whether I agree with them or not I can see both sides as I said um, but I do think we are going to start seeing uh, more and more 
sort of holes, breaches, data leaks, hopefully not big ones. And the ICO's leniency, I don't know. I think I can see the, the justification behind it, but whether or not that will pay off, I don't know. And what would you recommend to companies who do suffer things like data breaches from a cybersecurity perspective? What, what's the first thing they should do? Be really transparent. Come out, tell everybody what's happened, tell everybody what you know has happened, any mistakes that have been made. Just be completely transparent. If you try and lie, if you try and hide it, people will find the data on the dark web. People will see that you've had some sort of cybersecurity incident and instantly you will look like you are lying and that you're not being transparent. And so it is far better for you to come out and get ahead of that story and give the public the story you want them to have than it is to let the media run a story and then you have to go out there with fire extinguishers trying to put it out afterwards. So definitely get ahead of it first, work out what you would say. You can do that now. What would I say if it happened tomorrow? And then you have that template ready to run should the worst happen. Mm, That makes sense. It seems like almost part of the process of protecting against and recovering from the security breaches is almost a PR exercise. Yeah, definitely. It is. It's a PR exercise. And if you look at companies that have done really well out of the breach, which is an odd thing to say, but they've had cyber attacks and data breaches and their reputation has has done one. It's done wonders for their reputation. Likes of Maersk, for example, or Norse Hydro. Um, both companies came off really well from their cyber attacks. And that was because they were transparent and they were honest and they were communicative. So it's very much a PR exercise. And if you get it wrong, you will be crucified, unfortunately. In talking about that, Lisa, I know I'm cyber, leading the cybersecurity teams for, for big enterprises can be a risky job. And um, you're the sort of, you know, the buck stops with you. Is there a lot of are CISOs changing roles a lot? And how easy is it for them to sort of make changes within, to, you know, to sort of proactively get in front of those sorts of data breaches? I think... It very much varies company to company and industry to industry. I think some industries are very forward thinking. The maritime industry, for example, and the space industry, both of which I do quite a lot of work with, um, have been very used to dealing or planning for incidents and and putting money into that process. So in that respect, those industries, you will be pushing against an open door, so to speak. Perhaps in other industries that maybe haven't had that same practice or same needs to drive that kind of uh, thinking, it could be that the old fashioned thinking remains and that could then cause problems for a forward thinking CISO who really wants to kind of revolutionize how you do business. Um, I've heard a lot of CISOs who's, who've had difficulties with the board who don't want to transform their businesses, even in a digital way, and they want to print everything still in this day and age working from home, which undoubtedly causes a nightmare for people who are trying to move the business forward and transform it. Let's touch a little bit on your career and your own experience of leadership, obviously kind of growing Red Goat, you know, setting up uh, this voluntary organisation. You've obviously kind of experienced, uh, you know, working with people and helping grow teams. So what do you think are the qualities of a successful leader? Any of the individuals who follow me online will know I'm a very big fan of the space industry and space in general. 
So I'm going to pull in a space reference here because any opportunity to, right? Um, and one of the things <laughs> that uh, I read in, in Scott Kelly's book, and Scott Kelly is a, a famous astronaut who spent a year in space. And he talks about employing what he calls astronaut thinking to all the problems, which is stay completely calm, keep your emotions completely suppressed and work the problem. And everything is just a problem solving exercise. That's all it is. Some are more emotional and more urgent than others, but it's all just a problem solving exercise. And I found that's really helped me because there are always times when you run a business where something goes hugely wrong or you've forgotten to do something or overlooked something. And there's this tendency to sort of feel the adrenaline rush inside you and panic. And we don't make good decisions when we're in that state at all. So his comments about staying completely calm, looking at what the problem is, looking at the various solutions to solve that problem enables you to make the best decisions in any situation that's not optimal. So I really would encourage people to go read his book as well, because it's amazing and there's loads of leadership tips in there. Talking about space, and I know it is a big passion of yours. I'm guessing you've been glued to the telly lately watching the the Mars landing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's two, it's a two-part question. Did, did you see anything that surprised you? And can you expand a little bit on how space is also the technology used in space and the innovations used in space are filtering down into the world of business? I think the the Mars landing, the Perseverance landing, really gave people a lot of positivity and hope in a time where we were perhaps struggling a little bit. So I think there was a great, space has always done this. It's always had this sort of rallying support. Um, if you look at the space shuttle launches and other things like that, you know, it has the ability to pull people together and get people united behind a cause. I think what's really amazing when you start to unpick the the mission to mars is that you know the the landing entry descent and landing edl as they call it onto mars is seven minutes and there is an 11 minute delay between perseverance and earth between mars and earth just from the distance which means that if anything goes wrong there is no way on earth literally on earth that nasa can do anything about it because it would take 11 minutes it's already crashed by the time you think it's going to crash so the whole thing had to be completely autonomous, which is just incredible that you've managed to pull together a team of people who have programmed, engineered something that can fly and land on Mars completely autonomously. And I think the, the great thing about space is this ability to innovate and ability to experiment with things. And one thing I always talk about is the International Space Station and how it's a great example of how putting politics and differences aside, groups of nations can come together and create a solution to a problem that works. And I think that's really inspiring. And I think, so from that perspective, I think we can learn a lot from the space industry about pushing boundaries, about the use of tech to facilitate things that are literally out of this world. And I think it's a really inspiring industry to sort of get behind and watch the sorts of things that they actually come up with. And if you had to choose your own crew for space, this is a curveball, by the way, we're not prepared for this one. <laughs> Who would you choose to go to Mars with? <laughs> Who would be like your top crew? It could be anyone. 
Um, okay, in my top crew, I, I definitely want to take an ast- actual astronaut with me for a start because otherwise that's probably going to end badly. <laughs> Good <shot>. um, <laughs> So I think I'd take a qualified astronaut just for the, you know, for the the uh, the uh, perspective of it. Uh, probably a doctor because I'm quite accident prone, so I'm probably going to need medical assistance at some point when we land on Mars. <laughs> um, and then I think take some... Uh, a good cook, I think, would be a good one as well, actually, because you need some good food. <laughs> it's a great shout. So, yeah, I think I'd take an, an astronaut, a doctor, and a cook. <laughs> wow. That's a really good choice. I could recommend an astronaut. I think tying the story into one of my own, one of my highlights of my career was sharing a glass of champagne with Tim Peake at one of our chief wine offices, uh, which was really, really exciting. He was great, and uh, his presentation just blew everyone away. Had nothing to do with business or the cloud or technology, and it was just images of space, and everyone was, it was pretty uh, inspiring. In terms of the next question, you know, when you're not overcoming the boundaries of male-dominated industries and, and saving hospitals from hackers, you're also um, setting yourself impossible tasks, such as climbing the highest mountain in the world, uh, Mount Everest, can you tell us a little bit about that? And, and do you think any, you know, any lessons you've learned from, from what you're doing there comes into your role uh, within cybersecurity? Yeah, I mean, I've been a mountaineer for a very long time, um, climbed mountains all over the world. And this is obviously the biggest one, but it's not the most dangerous. Um, and I think the thing I like about mountains is that it actually there's a lot of teamwork that needs to go into climbing a mountain, especially a big mountain. But also uh, what I really like about it is kind of reduces us to a sort of more primitive form of ourselves in a way, because it becomes less about how many likes am I getting on social media or have I put a blog out or, you know, am I doing this? What's my image like? What does my hair look like? And it becomes more about survival and helping each other survive and get through it. And there's some level of purity to that that I just really really enjoy and probably crave actually and in terms of leadership it's you know there's there's so many similarities between mountaineering and leading a business which sounds a little bit corny to say but there's communication issues there's strategy there's planning there's communication with your teams in non-optimal situations you know in these on these big mountains the level of oxygen is so low you can't have complex conversations. You can't understand nuanced cons- concepts. You know, it's it's very much what mountaineers call binary thinking. It's, you know, how am I feeling? How much energy do I have? What's the weather doing? Where are my teammates? And keeping yourself going because in those environments, the boundary between everything being absolutely fine and everything being an absolute disaster is so fine that, you have to work together. You have to communicate in really simplistic, clear terms. And I think there is a lot of that that can be carried over onto business because, again, I think we have a tendency to overcomplicate the way we communicate with our teams. And actually, a lot of it can be really simple. And it's probably a lot more effective if it is. That's so true. I think it also ties back to what we were talking about at the start of this interview as well, as to kind of women in tech and the lessons you've learned from kind of dealing with, you know, sort of ex-marines and stuff and that directness and that clearness and, you know, getting yourself heard and communicating directly. It's all so important for consistency and communication. 
Well, thank you so much, Lisa. It's been such a great interview. We're just going to finish off with uh, just some quick, sharp questions, uh, which we like to ask all of our guests, uh, most of which are slightly lighter hearted. So I want to kick off with asking you, what's your guilty technology pleasure? Okay, Apple Pay. (laughs) And when I say it's become a bit of a problem to the extent where if I go onto a website to buy a takeaway or to buy anything, and there's not the button for Apple Pay, I sort of think, oh my God, how am I, I'm going to have to walk downstairs, find a card. I don't even know where my card is. Find my card, put my stuff in. It's just that convenience, right? And I think that if you don't accept Apple Pay, I'm probably putting the products back on the shelf and walking out. That's how much of a guilty pleasure it's become. (laughs) I think that speaks leaps and bounds for all of us as customers and the challenges that some of these businesses have now, because you can't do a two-step click. That's way too much. You need just a one step. If you don't have that, then you're out. And then in terms of the role of CISO, how do you see that uh, evolving? And what does that role look like in the future? I think it's all of those sort of IT security team roles have had to evolve enormously. We've gone from a situation where we had our palace and our castle and, and these big boundaries, these big walls around it and a moat and everything was inside. All the critical stuff was in one place to now it's in the cloud. People are working from home. They're accessing stuff from pretty much anywhere they want. And that looks set to continue in one shape or another going forward, even after this pandemic. So I think the entire concept of how we do security has been ripped up and we need to come up with a new way of doing it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, If you could describe your leadership style in one word, what would you use? Creative. And yeah, creative. I'm going to go for creative. I was either going to go creative or fiery, but I think creative is is a better one. Um, Yeah, I'm hugely creative and I I love being coming up with new solutions to things and and encouraging others to do the same as well. So I would definitely say that was my, uh, my style. And in terms of your greatest success or, you know, your, your greatest sort of leadership, um, achieving, you know, a plan, what was that? So this was actually in a crisis situation back when I was working in the anti-piracy industry. And it was a bit of a difficult one because essentially one of our ships that we were protecting got approached by pirates. Um, The escalation of force was employed, but sadly the pirates fired several RPGs, rocket propelled grenades at the ship and impacted the cargo containers um, and blew them up essentially. And this situation was very rapidly becoming out of control. And we were very concerned that they were going to board the ship so we had to come up with a strategy literally on the fly I was over the phone so I was here in the UK and my team are on board the ship um, to come up with a strategy to to get rid of them which thankfully worked and I think that was the probably I probably aged five or six years in about a 30 minute phone call if I'm honest during during that moment but it was great because everyone was staying calm everyone was thinking logically and not emotionally and again coming back to that point about astronaut thinking you know it's about making sure that we've got a problem let's find a solution to it and let's not just panic because we're not going to make good decisions so that was probably the most high stakes situation thankfully I've ever been in and hopefully I won't be in another one like that um going forward 
Did you feel like the lives of the crew were in your hands at that stage? Yeah, very much. And, 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 you know, the lives of the pirates, because if it escalates to a certain point, there will be shots on target fired. And, you know, the consequences of that is the loss of life, which, you know, on either side is not something I wanted on my shoulders. So thankfully we avoided that, but you know, it was, it was getting pretty desperate, pretty fast. Yeah, I can't even imagine what that stress feels like. I, I get stressed, you know, planning out an email send. Uh, so I think the contrast there is uh, is shocking. <laughs> I mean, just one final question, uh, Lisa. We'd just like to leave our listeners with, you know, what are the top one or two cybersecurity issues that should be top of mind uh, and that we should be focusing on today? Making sure that you have a plan and playbook for a cyber attack or data breach, making sure you've rehearsed it so you know what you would do and who is responsible for making those decisions. That's definitely a key thing we all need to have for all of our businesses. Then the next thing is making sure you are keeping that line of communication with your staff. So yes, they're working from home. Yes, we have productivity issues. Yes, we have, you know, uh, enabling issues with technology. But we also need to make sure that they are aware that the same security rules that we had in the office still apply at home. Different environment, exactly the same concerns. So I think the two things combined are, are really, really important, especially now. Your rebooting series, Lisa, for the listeners, um, if anyone uh, wants to subscribe to that, uh, it is very interesting, Lisa. Do you want to just tell us very quickly, high level, about that? Yeah, it's um, so rebooting is my YouTube vlog uh, where I interview cybersecurity and technology and space and other leaders in the uh, in the sector. Uh, and it's not so much of an interview. We more debate issues that are coming up. So we discuss things that have happened and have heated debates on what we think we should do about them. I'll definitely be listening. Thank you so much for your time, Lisa. It's been wonderful chatting to you and good luck with your trip to Everest. Keep us posted. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this conversation, then please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, wherever you do like to listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to hear more of Lisa, you can also find her contribution to our latest Anywhere Operations report, which can be found on our site, co.digital. Thanks so much for your time and see you soon.